0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 11 of Digging Through Dominoes. I'm your host, Terry Anderson, and this is the show where we dig through the dominoes of our past to figure out how in the heck to change the game of our future. Welcome to Digging Through Dominoes, a podcast that looks at mental, physical, and emotional trauma through real and inspiring conversations. This is your safe haven that welcomes you in, but also isn't afraid to talk about what hurts the most. And now, here's your host, Terry Anderson. Today's episode is on a topic that I really hadn't thought about doing at this point until it hit me square in the face. I realized if I didn't do it now, I might lose some of the passion in, um, trying to relay to you the way this, this works, at least with me. And that's about emotional flashbacks. A lot of you may be saying, what the heck are you even talking about? What is an emotional flashback? Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you they're real. Second of all, they suck. So I'm going to tell you, Pete Walker, in his book, uh, Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving, chapter eight, the first paragraph says, emotional flashbacks are intensely disturbing regressions, which are otherwise known as amygdala hijacking, to the overwhelming feeling states of your childhood abandonment. When you're stuck in a flashback, Fear, shame, and or depression can dominate your experience. I have to tell you, out of all the therapy I've had, and there's been a lot of it, this one piece of information for me explained so much of my life. First of all, I never even knew what an emotional flashback was or how intensely they can control you. And, you know, amygdala hijacking, I mean, that is exactly what happens. You're hijacked back. You're transported back in time to another place where things were really bad. Not quite as bad as whatever you may go be going through at the moment that triggered that emotional flashback. But you know what? Like I said before, they suck. So we're going to talk about them because I had a trigger today. I had a trigger a few weeks ago. Today's was a little more strong than it was a few weeks ago. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to let you guys know. I've told you through this, I'm going to be transparent. I'm going to let you know my journey. So, you know, I know what you're going through, or at least I would be able to empathize, to sympathize, to understand maybe a little bit more of what you're going through And maybe you wouldn't feel quite so alone. And hopefully this might help some of you guys understand what's happening when it's happening. So what is an amygdala you might be saying? Asking, sorry. The amygdala is a structure in the brain that controls emotions such as fear, sadness, aggression, and it prepares us for possible oncoming danger. It's a part of our brain that's primarily responsible for the flight, fl- flight, fight responses that that we get so often because it's the part that really tells us, "Hey, wait a minute, you're in danger." Okay, so the amygdala, as I said, is responsible for the perception of fear, the perception of danger, and the regulation of anger. The amygdala also helps to store memories of events and emotions so that we might be able to recognize them later. You know, like that dog that for me, it was a chihuahua came and bit me. For the rest of my life, I have been petrified of chihuahuas because of the one that bit me when I was probably three years old two or three years old I I just read this second this paragraph here that I have on my computer and it says if you've ever suffered a dog bite then the amygdala may help in the processing of that event and therefore increase your fear or alertness around dogs it's kind of weird that I came up with that before I even saw this. It says the size of the amygdala is positively correlated with increased aggression and physical behavior. Okay, so we have this little thing in our brain, shaped like an almond, and I didn't turn off my focus. Out of all things, my phone just rings. I should have known to put focus on before, but I didn't do it. And it said no caller ID. That would have been a double do not answer this phone call. And it was a dude trying to scam me. He said, How are you today, ma'am? I said, You know, I'm a little irritated that I'm in the middle of work and you're making a phone call to try and scam me. His response was, F you, F you, F you. And I'm like, huh, go away. We're talking about the amygdala and the fear. And I bet. Mine's gonna be storing a little bit of anger for these phone calls. So with so knowing that the amygdala stores those memories of fear, those memories of trauma, so that we can recognize them, be on the alert, and really be out of there before the rest of our brain realizes what's going on is really important. That really helped me understand so many of the feelings that I had had for so long that were extremely out of proportion in looking back on them. At the time, I didn't think they were out of proportion, but in looking back on them, I can see how out of proportion they were to the current event. The amygdala can be damaged in adults, by surgeries and things of that nature. In children, it can be damaged by intense, prolonged trauma. That makes so much sense. Our brains are actually rewired in ways that we have no idea. That control when someone... What happened yesterday? I was vacuuming or I was doing something, somebody walked in the door and I freaked. I jumped right out of my skin. That, that's that kind of response you get. It, it, it alerts you to danger before the rest of your brain even knows danger is present. Researchers have found lesions on the amygdala can cause hypervigilance and that's just what i was speaking of that jumping out of your skin when something's there that you don't expect to be there and just kind of shows up boo gotcha and your heart races your my heart rate goes up i can feel i start getting hot i get sweaty it's harder to breathe my breathing gets more rapid more shallow it's that dangerous. Like I've got to get out of here and I have to get out of here now. I think what's interesting is in the reading I've been doing, researchers are saying that the amygdala is responsible for keeping us in a constant state of fear and anxiety. This article here in FlintRehab.com says, unlike patients with paranoia. A hypervigilant person understands there is no actual threat. They just cannot control their physical response. And those physical responses of anxiety can be damaging in so many ways. The amygdala doesn't only control our response to fear, anxiety, sadness, and regulating anger. I forgot the word there for a minute. It also plays a crucial role in other cognitive functions and can lead to if you have damage to that part of your brain, it can lead to things such as poor decision making and impaired emotional memories. The traumatic experiences that we have can ha- there there there's such a wide range of symptoms that affect all aspects of life of survivors of trauma. Those symptoms include clinically significant distress and impairment in social, occupational, and other areas of functioning. Traumatic experiences also affect the amygdala by leading to significant structural and functional changes in the brain. And it pretty much controls our emotional and our Our cognitive abilities and processing. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more that I have here pulled up in certain documents on my pages. And then I'm going to tell you my experience and how it's affected me through the years and at times has made me want to cease existence. So the hippocampus, if I said that correctly, and the amygdala work together. Together. And what they do is the amygdala encodes the emotional aspect of a memory, while the hippocampus? hippocampus, please correct me, controls the context. The combination of them working together strengthens overall memory. That may explain why memories of life-changing events such as weddings are more clear than other mundane experiences. However, it says if the amygdala is damaged, the double encoding cannot happen. You cannot put the experience within the context, which makes a huge freaking deal. If you can't put that memory in the context in which it happened, it can pop up anytime. And anything that reminds you of that experience can bring it forth and make it that much more difficult to control. Researchers have found that lesions on the amygdala actually control what we see in other people. We're constantly surveying them if they're safe or not. We don't know that this is happening. It's just, it's just happening. We're looking for danger. And if we need to flee, and I tell you what, mine has not always worked 100% of the time. Well, a lot less than that. So let's go into... What happened to me, and how these flashbacks—they don't just affect me; they affect everyone in my life. When I was a little girl, I was rarely celebrated. I can remember maybe one birthday party. My mother would maybe buy a cake and give me a card. I only remember one time that I was made to like feel special on my birthday. But I do remember the way my dad treated my mother on her birthday on Valentine's and things like that. And so I knew that my mom meant a lot to my dad. But that wasn't coming my way. I was sort of just shoved off. It made me feel less than it made me feel really insecure. It made me feel like I really wasn't worth anything. When I got married, I think my oldest daughter, when did she start this? She noticed that my husband wasn't really recognizing my birthday. He wasn't recognizing Valentine's Day. And Christmas shopping was a last minute event, like Christmas Eve. That really hurt my feelings because I'm thinking, you know, I'm on the other end of that. I'm thinking for weeks what the perfect thing would be. I did not realize at the time... That those emotions I had were being not only the emotions I were having that I was having in the present, but they were being magnified by the way I had felt at the most dangerous, most difficult times of my childhood. So when you combine the two together, I was like off the charts with with emotion. And you know, someone a typical person that didn't have the the uh, childhood neglect that I had would probably respond to it in a completely different manner. I didn't. I would be severely hurt. Now, there were a lot of things that led up to that, that I think when you mesh everything together, it made it even more significant than it would have been. But my daughter, oh gosh, I don't know how, well, let's see, my mother died in 2006. I'm going by cars, yet years of cars. Um... I had a Jaguar, and I think that's the first year my daughter did it. She recognized that things weren't happening, and she was recognizing I was feeling left out. I was feeling alone. Here I was dealing with eight kids, my grandson, all of the friends, everything was going on, and mom was being left out. Here on Mother's Day, here on my birthday, it hit me hard. My oldest daughter recognized that and what she would do, she would decorate my car, get balloons, buy a cake. She would have these really cute little gifts that she would give me and she did this for years because she knew there was something missing in me. She knew how it affected me. I don't think she knew then about my childhood and the way that I was treated then but she could see what was going on in the household and it would send me into a really deep depression and it it is in those times that I felt I wasn't worth anything and actually taking another breath of air might be stealing it from another person because if I wasn't worth anything why be here? So she did all of this stuff for me. And then on my forty-seventh birthday, she did something really amazing. And she, you know, I've kind of handed to the girl. She and I have not spoken in a while, but she really went a just all out. She went all out. It was on my 47th birthday, and people started showing up, like that lived out of state. My brother. And then my other brother, my aunts, we went to a, um, I didn't know that they were planning a surprise party and we had a motorcycle event to go to. And I kind of had a feeling something was up, but I wasn't sure. So we went to this motorcycle event. My sister-in-law said she wasn't feeling well and she really needed to get, get home. And I'm like, but we just got here. So we go home, get back to the house And I had a feeling the energy was different in my house. So I went down into the guest suite that we had built on for my mom. And there were balloons. There were streamers. My aunts were there. My brothers, friends, people I didn't even know. And it was an all-out surprise costume party with the most beautiful cake I had ever seen. I was blown away. I was totally blown away, that my daughter realized I needed to feel important, and she made it happen. So my husband doesn't really feel the same way about birthdays, and I don't think he understood for a long time why it was so important to me, why Valentine's meant something to me, why Christmas meant something to me, and why my feelings were so hurt if a kid was set out sent out with a credit card or nothing was even thought of, but was bought the day of Christmas Eve. I don't think he understood why I was so hurt. I didn't understand why I was so hurt, but I was, I was devastated. And it was all of those memories from childhood telling me I wasn't worth it. And they were hitting me hot and furious and they would really send me like I said into the depths of despair into a depression that I a lot of times didn't think I was going to be able to come out of I know people looked at me and thought what is your problem you're such a selfish brat even me I was thinking what you know what the heck is going on here Why is this affecting me like this? I see other people and they're not, it's not happening to them. Well, thanks mom and dad. I really appreciate, (laughs) you know, I love my parents. Like I said, I love my parents, but this is one of the things in my recovery that has meant the most and has explained the most to me in my reactions, in my overreactions and things of that nature. You know, I understand there are certain things that aren't as important to other people as they are to me logically. Emotionally, it's really hard. I mean, I've had 60 years of this amygdala hijacking, amygdala hijacking going on. I had no idea what it was. I just felt I wasn't worth it. Now it makes sense. Does it hurt less? No, it doesn't hurt less in any way, but it makes sense. When I think of how hard my daughter worked to pull all of this off, I'm absolutely blown away. One, that she sensed it. And two, that she followed through and she made sure her mom felt special. And as I said, I didn't always, I didn't understand why it really bothered me. You know, I think part of me thought, you know, I'm working my butt off raising all of these kids and homeschooling these kids. And I don't know, I think I felt I wasn't really appreciated. But there again, that comes from my childhood. I wasn't appreciated when I was a kid. I was appreciated by my father after my mother died. Very appreciated. As a matter of fact, after my mother died, my dad and I built this incredible relationship. And it really, it made me understand a lot more of what was going on and some of the choices were made. But you know what? That trauma is still imprinted on my soul. It's still imprinted in my amygdala. And so when something like that happens... Immediately before my brain can logically work it out, I flashback, I get into an emotional flashback and it is absolutely devastating. You know, it also goes a long way in ex- explaining, well, my startle response, which is really exaggerated and people have laughed at me all my life for it. But it also explains my intense fear well, I guess a fear that I had, I no longer have it of abandonment. Not only did my dad abandon me every month when I was growing up and my mother would lock us out of the house or at least me and she would lock her bedroom door and really had no emotional, uh, no emotional connection with my mother growing up. I have this, you know, this huge thing of abandonment. And there were times when things would happen that made no sense to me, as I said before, why it was so severe, why it completely overwhelmed me and made me go to those dark, dark places where I should never have gone. Not only did I have the fear of being abandoned, I saw what my dad's mother did to him and his brother and his sister's so that was ingrained in me also. If your mother can just haphazardly give kids away here and there. You know, I think I think kind of by proxy I got my dad's abandonment issues. But I don't I don't have those abandonment fears anymore. I think in some areas I do. I think my dog, especially my German Shepherd, I think she really helped and Pete Walker speaks about that of how our furry friends can help heal those wounds and my dog karma i am so i just love her i've never loved a dog this much she has helped me get through so many things and i can honestly say the fear of abandonment it's really it's really not there i don't have it anymore maybe it's a hardened shell i don't know but um that's one thing i'm glad is gone as for everything else, I'm glad I understand it. And I wanted to go through Pete Walker's book here, trying to get through my microphone, because he has <clears throat> this toolbox in the back of this book, um, Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving. And it's all about managing flashbacks. There are 13 steps for managing emotional flashbacks. And one of the things that I started doing first, when I felt that fear come on and that panic, I realized I was in a flashback. That was huge for me. I'd stop. I'd breathe. I would try to remember or figure out what was causing the flashback, what memory from childhood was causing that flashback, And get myself through it sort of one second at a time at first, then one minute at a time, and then five minutes at a time. And then I started doing the, which I always thought was kind of hokey because I don't know. I, I think that was something else my dad instilled in me is just the fear of feeling stupid. That's still with me. I mean, the fear of feeling stupid is still with me big, 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 big time. But to talk to a little girl that's not there, but she is there because she's in me and try and calm her down, get her through that fear, get her through that time that she's going to be safe and, and reparent, if you will, myself. I haven't got through all of that in these books and hopefully I will, but that's something that's really helped a lot. And I wanted to go through some of these things that Pete Walker speaks about. Because I think you guys are going to find it really, really helpful. At least I have. One of the first of his 13 steps for managing emotional flashbacks is to say to yourself and to recognize, I'm having an emotional flashback. Believe me, it helps a ton. Pete says flashbacks take you into a timeless part of the psyche that feels as helpless and hopeless and surrounded by danger as you were in childhood. The feelings and sensations you are experiencing are past memories that can't hurt you now. Remind yourself, step two, remind yourself, I feel afraid right now but I'm not in danger. I feel hurt right now, but I'm not in danger. He says, I'm safe now, here in the present. Remember, you are now in the safety of the present, far, far from the danger you faced in the past. Number three, own your right And your need to have boundaries. I have done that. Actually, I didn't even realize that that was part of one of his steps. But I realized my boundaries, I can't really say they dawned on me, you know, 10 years ago. It it was within the last two years I realized how much I needed to set boundaries. And I found myself where in times past, I would say, anything you need, I'll do anything you need. I've stopped short. And that's just an example. I've said, I'm here for you. I've gotten myself in trouble by overcommitting. committing. I've gotten myself in trouble by letting negativity into my life. And I, I just don't do that anymore. If there's an argument going on, I disengage. If I can, I disengage. I leave. I don't have room for negativity in my life. I had enough of it as a kid. My gosh, at six years old, I need a break. I'm taking a break from it. He says on step three, remind yourself that you do not have to allow anyone to mistreat you. You're free to leave dangerous situations and protest unfair behavior. Speak reassuringly, which is number four, to your inner child. The child needs to know that you love him or her unconditionally because we were only loved conditionally before. That they can come to you for comfort and security and you will be there. Number five is deconstruct eternity thinking. In childhood, fear and abandonment felt endless. A safer future was unimaginable. And I think I've told you guys, I knew for sure I couldn't take care of myself when I was a young adult. I knew that 100%. I could not take care of myself. And that was my future. But he's saying to abandon that thinking process. Number six, remind yourself that you are in an adult body. Oh my gosh, what a huge, huge thing that is. Even when I'm at parties or I'm going to see some of my friends perform or something, I have to remind myself I am in an adult body because otherwise I feel like a child. And like I have no right to walk up on them, to say hello to them or whatever. And I'm really in check with myself. I haven't always been but I sort of swung one way and then swung back the other. And that's something that I really need to remember. I'm an adult body. I'm in an adult body. I cannot be hurt the way I was when I was a kid. I have the mind of 60 years. I have the wisdom, hopefully, of 60 years. And I can figure something out. Okay, in destructing eternity thinking, remember this flashback will pass as it always has before. And that's something I started doing without this exact wording, but thinking, okay, so far, my goal of making it through the other, to the other side has been 100%. And I've been able, if I have been able to make it to the other side, 100% of the time, I can do it this time. Sometimes it's like I'm hanging on by my fingernails, but I can make it. Number seven, he says, ease back into your body. We have a tendency when these things happen to disassociate. And I know that there were years that I had disassociated. Probably a good amount of my life was spent in disassociation. But he says, fear launches you into heady worrying or numbing and into spacing out, playing video games, being stuck on the computer, which I am. I'm on the computer all the time. It says, gently ask your body to relax. Feel each of your major muscle groups and encourage them to relax. Tighten muscles, send false danger signals to your brain. That's something I've learned to do at night. I have a very difficult difficult time going to sleep. And I'll lie there and I will feel, I'll close my eyes and I start at my toes. I'll feel my feet on the sheets. I feel the fan. I listen. I try to be in the moment and feel every part of it. And that really brings me back into my body. It helps me to stop worrying so much. And I'm usually able to go to sleep without a sleeping pill, which is like huge for me. Breathe deeply and slowly. That's something I've had to learn and I've been practicing that. When you hold your breath, that also signals danger. So that's going to just intensify what you're feeling if you're holding your breath. Slow down. When you rush, it Presses your brain's flight, fight button. So slow down, calm down, breathe deeply. Find a safe place. My safe place is usually my studio or in my bedroom. Find a safe place to unwind and soothe yourself. Wrap yourself in a blanket. I use weighted blankets I need to get another one because the one I got was really way too heavy for me, and I gave it to my daughter. But I found that the the heaviness of the comforters and the pillows and all of the blankets makes a tremendous difference with me and my anxiety. And it's like hold a pillow or a stuffed animal. Okay, in my worst of days, when I was barely making it through and I didn't know if I would live to see the next second. I had this cat that I had bought, a little beanie baby cat, and I had that cat with me all the time. And I'm thinking, my gosh, Terry, you're in your 40s. Why are you holding this stupid, dumb cat? Well, you know what? This explains why I was holding on to that cat. It gave me this comfort. And if I didn't have that cat with me, or I couldn't see that cat, I started getting really, really panicky, a lot of anxiety. And I had a toy when I was a kid that was a clown of all things, a clown. And I had that clown and it really, it did the very same thing for me. And when I found out my dad threw that away, as an adult, I went into a full blown panic attack. My dad didn't know it, but I lost it. I had to turn around and leave and I lost it because my safety source had been thrown away. It was gone. And I used to talk to my clown. His name was Cleety. If you want to know, I don't know how he got that name. But I used to talk to him and have conversations and he was my friend. He kept me safe. He watched over me just like my pretend family did. All right. And Pete also says, feel the fear in your body without reacting to it. Fear is just an energy in your body. It cannot hurt you if you don't run from it. I have never heard that before. That makes huge sense. And I tell you, that's something I'm going to use. Fear is just an energy. Wow. Right now, that's a pretty profound moment for me to realize that. Because fear always, it always held the trigger on me. But if I can relegate it to just an energy, that's a whole lot easier than seeing talons gripping me. His number eight is resist the inner critics drasticizing and catastrophizing. I can't say that. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. Stop, uh, use thought stopping to halt the critics' endless exaggerations of danger and its constant planning to control the uncontrollable. That's one thing I think I've gotten pretty good at or a lot better is I realize, you know, I can't control that. I'm not going to worry about it. Would I like it to be different? Oh yeah, I'd love it to be different, but I'm not going to control it. So why worry about it? Because then it has power over me and I'm not going to let that happen. I'm glad he put that in there and I'm glad that I've been doing that. He says, refuse to shame or hate or abandon yourself. It's hard to do sometimes. I'm working on it, not quite there. But to refuse that, to channel the anger of self-attack into saying no to your inner critic's unfair self-criticism. Use thought substitutions and thought correction to replace negative thinking with your memorized list of your qualities and accomplishments. And that's something we haven't talked about is making that list of your good qualities and all that you have accomplished in your life. And remember that because really this fear that controls us is a tiny part of our life. And if we don't keep it in perspective, it's going to take over and take over our entire life. Allow yourself to grieve. This is hard for me. I avoid any video that has crying or that's going to make me cry. I don't want to do it. It brings up too much for me. That's something that I really need to work on, allowing myself to grieve. Says flashbacks are opportunities to release old, unexpressed feelings of fear, hurt, and abandonment. Validate and soothe inner child's past experience of helplessness and hopelessness. Healthy grieving can turn your tears into self-compassion and your anger into self-protection. Cultivate safe relationships and seek support. Take time alone when you need it, but don't let shame isolate you. And that does that to me. I find myself self-isolating a lot and I don't, I don't, I don't like it, but, and it's difficult. And I find the more I self-isolate, the more difficult it is to get out of that isolation phase. Feeling shame doesn't mean that you're shameful. Educate the people around you about your flashbacks. I've tried to. And ask them to help you talk and feel your way through them. That's a hard one for me. I don't know if it is for you or not. A lot of us have gotten into relationships where people who are just as damaged as we are. And in my case, it is, well, I'm stronger than that. And I can control that. I'm sorry, you can't. And then you're left feeling like an idiot. And that's not true. At least I can acknowledge it. Even if they're not going to do it, I can do it for myself. Number 11, learn to identify the types of triggers that lead to flashbacks. Avoid unsafe people, places, activities, and triggering mental processes. Practice preventative maintenance with these steps when triggering situations are unavoidable. So I've done that. People that trigger me, I no longer have contact with. There are situations in my life though, where certain triggers are unavoidable, like my birthday, like Christmas, like Mother's Day, like Valentine's Day, things like that. And I'm going to have, what I've decided to do, I'm going to do it myself. I am going to take a vacation on my birthday and Mother's Day. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to take care of myself. If, if, If I'm not worth that to somebody else, I'm worth it to myself and I need to show myself that I am worth it and I don't need that held over my head that that's something that I need. I need to validate, validate my own feelings there. Also, this is so crucial. This is the last one. Number 13, be patient with a slow recovery process. It takes time in the present to become de-adrenalized, and considerable time in the future to gradually decrease the intensity, the duration, and frequency of flashbacks. Real recovery is a gradually progressive process, often two steps forward, one step back. Do not beat yourself up for having a flashback. I need to remember that because I do. I beat myself up when I allow myself to have a flashback. But now that I'm realizing that that tiny little part of my brain, that little almond shaped part of my brain is actually containing all of those memories, not in context. It's like, how do you control that? I guess, you know, just talk your way through it. But I've made, I can see so much progress. I had therapy today with my psychiatrist who I see once a month and he was talking about that he can gradually see me getting better and better and better with the steps that I'm taking to take care of myself instead of having to have someone else take care of me he can see my progression and that was amazing that was amazing to hear so yeah recovery is a slow process And I was watching a video, I may have mentioned it in the last episode, I don't know, and it was talking about, you really have to come to a a place in your life where you feel safe enough to recover. And I didn't feel safe enough to recover until a couple of years ago. I mean, I started the process, I've been in therapy for like, what, 12 years, I, I don't know the math on that. I've been in therapy for 12 years. So the first 10 years of therapy basically was prepping me for the last two years that I've had. And I feel now, you know, before I felt like every session I didn't want to be there, that I was dumping my problems on them. And I asked my psychiatrist today, I said, do you remember way back when I first started seeing you? And I would tell you, I was sorry for putting my problems on you. And he laughed at me and he says, yes, I remember. And I said, well, I don't mind it anymore because you're one of the guys that helps keep me safe and healthy. So remember that. Find someone safe that you can talk to. Not everyone's safe. And I had to find that out the hard way. But I am so happy that I now realize what an emotional flashback is, why I felt the way I was feeling, and how I can help control it. Because that just means I'm more in control of another part of my life. And I'm not relinquishing that control to another person. With that, we're about out of recording time. I am going to thank you guys so much Please leave a review. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find my email, email me. You can email me at at dominoes at gmail.com. You can find my other emails on either of my YouTube sites. And I believe it's also on my podcast platforms. I would love it if you would share. I hope that you get something out of the stuff that I've gone through because my goal is for you not to have to go through everything I did and to have a happier, much more conflict-free life. Until next next week, guys, I'll talk to you then. Thank you for listening to Digging Through Dominoes. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, connect with Terry on Facebook and Instagram at Digging Through Dominoes, on Twitter at Digging Dominoes, and online at DiggingThroughDominoes.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.